0: I invite you to open in your Bibles to Genesis, chapter 3. What we're doing this these weeks is we're uh, in a series that you can see is called Epic, The Journey from Insignificant to Magnificent. Last week we started with the story of Gideon. This week we're going back to Genesis, and this is going to be our, our uh, process through the fall up through Advent, for the most part, we're going to be going chronologically, and we're going to be looking at uh, famous people from the Bible, heroes of the faith, and others, who are going to help us grapple with, with the question of what uh, engaging what God is doing in the world, with his epic story that he's writing, and how we can be a part of that. So today, we're going right to the um, very near to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Listen for the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you are naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me, and I ate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, in some ways, we love this story, and we don't. <laughs> we pray that you would use our, our time this morning, that we would indeed have ears to hear what you have to say to us. We pray, God, for... The encouragement, the exhortation, the comfort, and the challenge from your word. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. There was a TV sitcom that ran from 1989 to 1998, which was not only wildly popular, but as often at, at the top of lists that honor the most well-written, influential TV shows of all time. And it's really quite amazing, considering the fact that Seinfeld is often also described as being about nothing. (laughs) How many of you are fans of Seinfeld? Okay, for those of you who don't know, Seinfeld is a television show. And I'm not trying to be condescending, but it is, there are some folks who just aren't as tuned in, literally, to American television. We have a large um, contingent of folks who grew up in a different country. So it is a comedy television show called Seinfeld. It was written by Jerry Seinfeld, who also stars in it, and Larry David. Many of the episodes were were simply about the minutiae of life. And what made it so funny? Well, I actually ran across this quote from a rabbi, Moshe Gruskot. He's um, he's the rabbi of a synagogue in New York City's Upper West Side. And he compared the script of Seinfeld to the way the Talmud was written. You know what the Talmud is it's this it's this compendium of this gathering of Jewish writings from a long, long time ago, more than 1,500 years ago. It's the the writing and they're like Jewish civil and ceremonial law. And here's what the rabbi said about this television show. Seinfeld really had a Talmudic base in the way it was so nitpicky and asked so many questions, including the smallest and seemingly most unimportant things. Gruskotts said it was always funny to see how things that seemed totally unrelated were intertwined. So the characters of the TV show, Jerry, Kramer, George, Elaine, and others, They were constantly asking bizarre and hilarious questions. Questions like, what do you do if a couple invites you over to see their baby? And the baby is really ugly. What if you drop a junior mint into the body of a man during surgery? (laughs) Would your luck change if For every decision you had to make, you chose the opposite of what your instincts told you. (laughs) So in addition to crazy questions, there was also catchphrases that came from Seinfeld, some of which you might recognize, some of which you probably won't unless you watch the show. One of them was, uh, no soup for you, uh, referring to this character who was the soup- Nazi. Yeah, you know. Okay. These pretzels are making me thirsty. (laughs) Um, This is when you might realize, have you heard somebody ever say, not, not that there's something, not that there's anything wrong with that? That's from Seinfeld. And of course, the most notable that I have taken for my title this morning, yada, yada, yada. Yada, yada, yada. It's a saying that has been popularized. Actually, it was around before Seinfeld, but it has popularized, been popularized to mean uh, so on and so forth, or blah, blah, blah. So in Seinfeld's cynical world, the point was uh, that there was no point. And the Yada, yada, yada was the response to that. In the words of Stephen Garber, the the author of a book called Visions of Vocation, as silly as Seinfeld meant it to be, for those who had ears to hear, it did have meaning. Officially, the expression, um, we don't really know where yada, yada, yada came from officially. I mean, it's uh, in terms of its origin or its its etymology. uh, But I think it's no coincidence that the word yada is a Hebrew word and it means in the Hebrew language to know. Now I know some of you are thinking, uh, immediately thinking this, so we'll just call it for what it is. Yes, it also means to know in the biblical sense. (laughs) If you know what I mean, it also it, it also, it also, I'll make it clear in a moment. Just hold on. It also be, means to be aware of information. The word know. Uh, to know the truth about something or someone, it's a word with a uh, actually a very wide range of meaning. It includes to know, to acknowledge, to understand, to teach, to realize. To show, to experience care for, or concern, to learn, and yes, also to have intimate relations, to know. So in the old translations of the Bible, where it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, which meant they were going to have a baby, the word yada is used for that as well, yada. And there were actually more than a few times in Seidfeld that yada, yada, yada was a euphemism for that last one. (laughs) So here's the deal for today, though. The word is super important in this story in Genesis chapter 3, because it's about what happens with Adam and Eve and a certain tree, a tree that if they eat from it, they will have Knowledge, yada, of good and evil. It's a remarkable story, really. And and here is the man and the woman in the Garden of Eden. Eden is a word that literally means delight, it's paradise. And into this paradise comes the tempter in the form of a serpent. He comes to Eve and questions what God has said and commanded. Now, as the story goes, uh, and as is told um, in the previous chapter, actually in Genesis chapter 2, God's exact words were spoken to the man in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2. And here they are You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. That's the quote from Genesis chapter 2. Now, what happens after this, right after this? Something happens in that story, and it's a major event in the creation. This is the second creation story. There's two creation stories in, in Genesis. This is the second one. The second one, all this is said about the, the tree of good and evil, and then right after that, someone is created. And who is that someone? The woman is created after the command about the tree of good and evil. God creates woman. So that means she wasn't around when the man learned about the tree, right? So when the tempter comes to the woman, he's asking her what she learned from whom? The man, right. He's challenging what she knows, and he does it in a really crafty way first by questioning. Did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Which is, I don't know, mildly inaccurate, but it's inaccurate. Because is that what God said? No. That you, can eat from, you can't eat from any tree in the garden? So she confidently answers, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden." But God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. So far, so good. Nor shall you touch it. Where did that come from? It's almost as if she has been playing uh, telegraph. You know how that game where you sit around in a circle and a person says something and it goes all the way around the circle. By the time it gets around, it's something completely different. That's already changed for her. Nor shall you touch it or you shall die. It's mostly correct, it's a little inaccurate. Well, the serpent strikes at her inaccuracy and directly contradicts what God has said and says, you will not die. For God knows, yada, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, the story goes on, and the man And the woman suddenly realized that they were naked. It's the kind of knowledge that brought shame into the equation. They sew fig leaves for themselves to cover themselves and then they hide. God comes looking for them. They're hiding and he calls and says, where are you? The man says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. God says, Who told you? You were naked. Did you eat from the tree I told you not to eat from? And immediately the man does what humans do and have been doing ever since when confronted with the truth about themselves. (laughs) The woman that you gave to me as a companion, she tricked me and gave me the fruit and I ate. It's almost like he says, you know, the woman you gave me as a companion, she gave me, so he's blamed God and the woman both, and I ate it. There's a little adenum. And God says to the woman, what is this you have done? And she does the same thing. The serpent <laughs> seduced me, and I ate. And so it goes. God doesn't ask anything of the serpent, because we know what would happen. <laughs> Now, while this story is often cited in debates about gender expectations (laughs) and issues, not to mention the discussion of the presence of evil in the world and sin, I would like us this morning to view this from a different perspective. I'd like to look at this story from the perspective of yada, knowledge, on a basic level This is what's going on here. It's about knowing and what happens once you know. I see three possibilities of things that could have happened in this story, and two of which actually happened. In response, first of all, to the knowledge about good and evil, the first thing the man and the woman do is to cover themselves and hide the truth was too much. The knowledge of good and evil was more than they could handle. So they decided what a lot of us do when faced with the truth, deny it. It takes actually many forms. When you find out about the truth about someone, the uh, one option is to just hide or or to deny the reality of it. to Simply just to say you don't care, or be apathetic. We have a very telling expression for that. Whatever. How many times have you found yourself saying that, or have you, you've heard it? Whatever. Sometimes the truth seems like too much, or there's too much information. The response one hears is, whatever. Apathy. I, I believe, actually, we live in a very apathetic age. It's easy to just change the channel. If you're hearing something you don't want to hear, just ignore reality. We have an endless supply of things to distract us from reality. Whether it's entertainment, or in this part of the country, the great outdoors, There's so many different options. It's easy to look at the world or the truth about our family or ourselves and say, ugh, whatever. So that's one possibility. Denial, apathy, basically both forms of hiding from the truth or dealing with it. Another possible response is actually seen in this story. We've already named it. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. God, it's your fault. Blame. When you find out something about the world, or about your friend, or about yourself, you can find, if you can find someone else to take responsibility or blame, that actually may excuse you, make you feel a little better for a time. Is this not what we see in much of the news coverage these days? Blame. And how helpful is it really? So there is a third option. And let's just point out that to a person, those who have journeyed from insignificance to magnificence in scripture, at some point have chosen this option. It is simply to take responsibility. As we go through each of these Sundays from now until the Advent season, there will be a point in each one of these heroes of faith where they will respond and say, basically, based on what I know, I must do this. Now that you know what you know, what will you do So how about you? You will hear the truth. We all do at some point. The truth may make you feel uncomfortable. It may stir up feelings of anger or shame. The truth is not always comfortable. Truth. There are kids at our school across the street, Cascade Elementary, right here, which serves our neighborhood right here. There's kids across the street who need help learning to read because, well, mom and dad can't help them. There's nobody in their life who can help them learn to read. It takes more than just what you get in the classroom. And why isn't there anybody in their life who can teach them how to read? Well, because nobody at home knows English yet. It's a problem. It's a huge help when somebody shows up once a week and simply listens to them read and helps them to get it right the way that Ruby does. I see Ruby over there every time I go over. She's listening to a child read. It's not overburdening. You just listen and when they don't get it right, you say, oh, it's this. You help them learn. It's not hard. Now that you know, what will you do? Marysville Community Lunch is an amazing ministry here in Marysville, but it really needs folks to come on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday and help to serve lunch. Is this true, Terry? We need people. It's not hard, but it's so important. We have people who live on the streets here in Marysville who live camped out in the woods or under overpasses. They're here. You see them once in a while. But they know that three times a week there's a warm, hot lunch available and we struggle to keep it staffed. Now that you know, what will you do? I mentioned this morning there's some of our seniors here who need rides to and from worship on Sunday mornings. There are a few people who are helping with this, but the deacons need more people to help with rides on Sunday morning. Now that you know, what will you do? The Marysville cold weather shelter will be opening soon on the evenings when the temperature drops below 32 degrees. Last year, there were nights when the shelter was trying to open, but it was kind of dicey because it was tough to find volunteers. And this is not dangerous work. It's not. It's not. There's really great procedures and guidelines. And basically, it does not require a whole lot of training or anything like that. You just basically need to be willing to serve the cold-weather shelter when it gets cold so that people don't die camping out at night. And we've had some of that here in Marysville, and we don't want to have it happen anymore. We need volunteers. Now that you know, what would you do? We live in a world that produces enough food to feed everyone. We do. There's 8 billion people in the world, give or take a few. And yet, and yet, around 800 million people are undernourished in our world. Many, many of these are children. and you hear the words, Mommy, I'm hungry. Over three million kids die every year from hunger-related issues. That's about 8,500 every day, or about 175 since we began worship this morning. This in a world that produces enough food to prevent this. When you know something like this, what will you do? Whatever. Blame someone? Or respond? It's your choice. It's my choice. And Jesus said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Amen. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to be a church that responds, to be people together, but Lord, also individually, who are known as those who step up, and to do our part. None of us, God, has the ability to solve all the world's problems to conquer world hunger by ourselves. But Lord, together we can do something. Thank you, God, for the gift that you gave us in the form of a little village in Africa where kids face hunger on a daily basis. Lord, where they have diseases that, that could end their lives if there's not help. Help us, God, to get our eyes off ourselves long enough to let you break our hearts with what breaks your heart. As we bring our offering to you, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see this and every other offering that we give you as a way of responding. We pray it in the name of Jesus, amen.